Amen. So those that are in middle school, you are now dismissed to go to your class. I think your teacher's already gone, so maybe some of you have already disappeared. I don't know. I did my announcement. (laughs) Amen. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Proverbs. We're going to continue on our journey through this amazing book. And uh, I got to point one. Yes, you know, I was working on it, and I realized point one is the entire sermon. (laughs) So uh, that's okay. I'll just have to continue in chapter 21, hopefully, Lord willing, next week. But why don't we stand here? So we go to the Lord in prayer. And, And, you know, I want to pray very specifically today. And I'm going to share a little bit, and this is going to really fit into my sermon. But you know, it's this, this week, within, with, within an hour, I had two texts from people in our church family, and uh, both of them sharing that their children are just battling suicide. I mean, within 60 minutes. And so I want to pray. You know, and, and Patty and I have had a lot of discussions about this, and I know some of you have probably... Uh, recognize this, that many people have come to church, and sometimes children come to church, young people come to church, and they hear the gospel, they hear the good news, but then they make a terrible choice. They choose, they choose death over life, and they, they turn their own way, and they just think, you know, the current of culture is very strong today, and it's uh, bending a lot of people's minds, and I even see uh, middle-aged people being bent. I see older people getting swept up by the currents of the culture, And eventually they just kind of drift and eventually they find themselves almost shipwrecked in their lives and there's this brokenness. And so I wanna pray for all the prodigals. I wanna pray for these two young men that I know about I've been praying for this week. I wanna pray for people who are, you know, not addressing issues in their life. I pray today, we're gonna have an amazing day today. I I believe that. The Spirit of God is gonna work powerfully and supernaturally in your life. You just open your heart to God today, I believe God's Spirit's gonna speak right into your innermost being. And uh, I think captives are gonna be set free today. How's that? Let's agree, let's agree, amen? Let's believe it. So Father, I wanna thank you this morning, uh, the privilege of speaking your word, Father. And as I was meditating this morning and considering, Lord, I recognize that right now I'm, I'm held in the, in the palm of your right hand, Father. I'm your servant just speaking your message, Lord. And I pray that these words would be so powerful, so life-giving, so transformational. And I think of these young people right now, some of them come to my mind, Lord, who once was in this place, who have heard your words, oh God, and yet have chosen death over life, Father. And, and it, it's, it's a choice that comes that's so subtle, we don't even realize we're making the choice, but we're allowing the current of our culture and some of its ideology and the language of the devil, which is a language of lies and falsehood that deceives us, and then we become self-deceived. We begin to justify what we're doing, and pretty soon we're drifting in the shoals of death, Father. I pray today that you would set these two young men free. I pray today you would deliver them by your power. But Lord, not only for them, for the many prodigals, for the many that are struggling, Lord, I pray today that you would break shackles in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for that, oh God, that you would set captives free, and that the word of the living God Lord, would bring joy and hope and even conviction and challenge and comfort and strength and a gift of repentance into our hearts. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. Um, anybody notice I've, I've changed my, uh, my titles. My wife said to me, your, your titles are too boring. <laughs> thank you, dear. How many know that you have a wonderful person called your helpmate and she's helping shape me? And so 
Some of you are going, what is he going to say about writing your own eulogy? How many think that's already more of an intriguing title? You can thank Patty for that. She'll be here in the next service. So, How many know the word eulogy means to speak well of or praise of someone? And usually, when do we do that? Is that a memorial service? We usually tell the dead, well, we, we, we wait too long to tell them what we really think of them. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that kind of sad? You ever thought about that? I know we should start telling each other. Before we're gone, why don't we say to each other, hey, you know, I just want to speak high praises. I want to just speak well of you. I want to just say what you mean to me. I want to just tell you what about your life speaks to me. Well, my question I'm raising today is what are people going to say about you? Or what are people saying about you? And what are you communicating to other people by the way you live? And that's why I've entitled the message Writing Your Own Eulogy, because each one of us, in a sense, is writing our own eulogy. Every day, by the way we treat people, relate to people, how we think, how we behave, all of our actions are actually writing a eulogy about our lives, whether people can sing our praises or not. Is it a praiseworthy life? Probably above all, does God sing our praises? Is he delighting in our lives? Isn't he the most important person? That God could say, man, I'm so proud of you. You're my kid. You're just knocking it out of the park here. I'm just, I'm rejoicing. Look at angels. He's bumping angels and high-fiving. Look what my kid just did down there, right? Isn't that an awesome thing that God could sing our praises? You know, I read a book a while ago. It was the story of Tony Dungy. Some of you that are NFL fans, you know who he is. He's an amazing coach and a very godly Christian and coached for many, many years. And finally, he won as the coach the Super Bowl in 2007. Since then, he's been kind of a, a moderator on uh, the NFL. But I want to just say a few things about Tony Dungy. And, he, and, and really, I love what his uh, former employer who happened to own the Indianapolis Colts, who actually won the Super Bowl with Tony as their coach. And this is what Jim Ursay said about him. Amid the deafening roar surrounding the machinery of earthly glory, the spiritual man leaves quiet footsteps of inspired faith. Now, how many say that's powerful? In other words, that's what he's saying about Tony Junji. This guy's faith is so real, it's so authentic, it's so everyday that you can see it in the lives of the people he comes into contact. Jim Brown, who also hosts uh, part of a, a, uh, the NFL uh, show talking about football, he said, in the 21 years I've known Tony Dungy, I have consistently found him to be a man of integrity, sincerity, and openness. As a man of faith, no matter what trials or tribulations he's faced, oh, by the way, his son committed suicide the very year he was winning the Super Bowl. Can you imagine having that in your heart? He said he's faced, he has embodied the scriptures found in Proverbs 16, 32. Better to be patient and powerful, better to have self-control than to conquer a city. And in his book, Quiet Dignity, Tony Dungy shares how his faith in Christ was far more important to him than winning football games. He wanted to do this in the right way, and he wanted the men that were playing on his team to become better men. As a matter of fact, he was more concerned about them becoming better people even than winning football games, though he wanted to win football games as well. That makes sense. Well, finally, having coached for so many years, he arrived to play in the Super Bowl, which is probably the goal of every NFL player and any any NFL coach. And this is what he shared. He said, for me, it wasn't even the Super Bowl itself that was uppermost in my mind. It was the thought of the journey and the way we had persevered through it all, not giving up, 
staying the course. Through all those years, I had believed that the principles I was holding onto were right and that the way I wanted to build a team and win was good. In other words, he didn't want to do it at the expense of winning at all costs. All along, my focus had been doing things the way I thought was right, walking where I felt the Lord was guiding. Sure, I absolutely wanted to reach the Super Bowl, but I always tried to keep that goal in its proper place in my life. With the Lord beside me, I felt certain that whatever was supposed to happen was going to happen. He didn't call me to be successful in the world's eyes. He called me to be faithful. I, I just love that. You know, it's, a, it's an inspiring read. I, I enjoyed reading that book. I think as society, we are trying to avoid or deny that there may be consequences to our actions. It just, it's an interesting world because I hear so often the first thing that happens when there's a problem is we have to blame somebody. We rarely take responsibility for our part in the problem. We always want to defer it off and say, you know, if it wasn't for this person or that person or what they said or what they did or how they treated me, I would have been a different person. Rather than just own up and say, you know, there's some places in my life that I might have to change. There's some things I might have to reevaluate in my own life. So Proverbs chapter 21, I think, deals with the issue of consequences for our actions. And it teaches us the necessity to make wise choices. You know, there's a contrast that's happening throughout the book of Proverbs. I don't know if you see it. There's two categories. There's two types of people. They're very broad categories, but the one is the wise, those who fear God, those who try to avoid evil, those who try to please God, live for him. And then there's another category. They're called fools, scoffers, mockers, those who are morally deficient, those who do not fear God, those who are not trying to avoid evil. Those are the two broad categories that we read in this wisdom literature. And actually, it's fascinating. Last week, when I spoke on Proverbs 20, I focused in because that chapter was primarily about, you know, the righteous, the things that the righteous were to avoid and the things that the righteous were to embrace. And if you were here or if you weren't here, you can actually pick it up. You know, you can listen to it on the podcast. You can watch it on the stream and hear what I had to say on that. But chapter 21 is a totally different chapter. As a matter of fact, uh, I noticed three things in that chapter, so I would have had three beautiful points. I noticed that it's primarily focusing on the wicked or the morally deficient. It's focusing uh, a little bit on what the righteous are doing in, in contrast to the wicked. And then we notice a third important idea is how God's sovereignty is shaping our world. But you know what? Time restricts us from speaking in all three things. I'm going to focus on one. You say, what are you going to focus on? I'm going to zero in simply on uh, the, the nature of the wicked, their behavior, and their consequence. So now you don't have to shut me down and go, well, that doesn't apply to me. Just give me a moment. You're going to see that there's probably some things in our lives we need to look at. And maybe there are some elements that we're doing that actually embody what people are doing that don't fear God, and yet we say we do. So we're going to hang on there. Now, it's interesting that Jesus points out, and I think, obviously, he's the person of wisdom, He's, he's the embodiment of wisdom. You know, Jesus says something very interesting. I'm, I'm telling you, there's two roads that wisdom literature paints. But isn't it fascinating when Jesus is now preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, this is how he's coming towards his conclusion. And he says it this way. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road or the path that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. And then in the next verse, he says, but small is the gate, 
and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, how many say that what Jesus is basically doing is creating two categories? Where do you think Jesus gets this idea from? Well, obviously, he's the author of the entire book. I mean, it's the wisdom literature. It's the book of Proverbs. Jesus is summarizing what we have been saying. You know, so often in our our world today, uh, basically, he's saying that we should expect that the majority of people are walking this broad road or path. How many, that's what he's saying. Isn't that true? He's saying the majority of people are basically wrong. I want to say that again because that's a shocking statement because we're living in a culture today that believes that the majority is always right and I'm telling you they're not. And why am I saying that? Because the wisdom literature teaches it and Jesus declares it. He says most people don't get it. That's a shocking statement. How many know that you know, we're, we're so used to maybe reading the Bible or reading these words, it doesn't impact us anymore. The first time Jesus said this, it was shocking to people. He was basically saying that most people aren't going to get it. Most people are gonna, it's gonna slip right through their minds. It's gonna, like a sieve, they're not gonna understand how important it is to really diligently figure out, I need to find this, 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 this little road that leads to life because there's a huge, broad highway that's leading to destruction. When I look around my world today, I see a lot of destruction. How many are, can identify with you're just looking and you're seeing brokenness, woundedness, offense, relationships destroyed, people addicted. We could just go down the list. We could say, man, is there a broad road that's leading to destruction? Isn't that the truth? Of course it is. Then he says, unfortunately, only a few people, a minority, are going to find it and walk in this, uh, this truth. So Jesus is saying that the way to wisdom, as Proverbs would describe it, or the way to the abundant life that Jesus promises, restricted to those who discover God's path. And unfortunately, only a minority find it and walk in it. And to me, that's sad. Let's, let's widen this as much as we possibly can. And I think what Jesus is saying is very significant. In John's gospel, Jesus said that he's both the gate and he's the way and the truth and the life. In John 14, 6, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does that mean? That Jesus is the door in. If you want to you find life, you want to find eternal life, you want to be on the right path, you got to meet Jesus. It's real simple. No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no direction. No Jesus, confusion. No Jesus, you're not understanding the truth. No Jesus. And, you know, what does he say? He's the, he's the path. He's the way. It's a person. What we're about to see in Proverbs 21 is both a warning and an encouragement to avoid one path and embrace the other. Isn't that true? You know, I can read these texts and say, well, it doesn't apply to me. Or I can read these paths and say, hey, I better pay attention here. This is something I want to avoid. And I'm hoping that's what I, what's going to happen. I've already suggested we're going to restrict ourselves to look simply at the characteristics of the morally deficient today. And these are the people who, evidenced by their behavior, reveal that they do not have the fear of God in their hearts. And what the wisdom writers are pointing out is the relationship between our actions and the consequences of our actions. And I want to mention a caution before we even start. 
These proverbs are principles, which means that this is the general outcomes that happens even in this lifetime, though some may only be experienced in the life to come. In other words, even though it says it's going to be like this, it doesn't always happen in this lifetime. So sometimes people struggle. Well, it's not working. I'm going, give it enough time. It'll happen. The other caution for a believer is to dismiss what's being said as entirely not applicable to me. I'm not in the fool camp. I'm not a scoffer. I'm not a mocker. I'm not this wicked person he's talking about. Therefore, I just blow past these verses. And I think we tend to do that. However, even believers can manifest the wrong behavior at various points in their lives and experience some very painful consequences. Any believer here say, yeah, I've messed up a few times. I've done the wrong thing, and I've experienced some painful consequences. So let's learn together. Notice I said, let us pastor included. Let us, because I do stupid things too, and I don't want to, right? Let's ask God's Spirit to search our hearts today, to reveal to us areas that we may need to address in order to move forward spiritually, which brings us to the first warning. Well, I think there are four warnings here, or four descriptions, or four areas of the nature of the morally deficient person, and the first one is their self-perception. And I think we can say this is true of all of us. We don't fully know ourselves, right? Wouldn't you say that's true? We think we do, but there's probably some blind spots, you know? Listen to what Proverbs 21, 2 says. A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. Oh, I've kind of discovered most of us, when we do something, we always think we're right. Why would we do it? if we thought it was wrong, right? Well, there's a few people, they know it's wrong and they do it anyways. But generally speaking, if we're a Christian, we're trying to do the right thing. How many here say, Pastor, I am usually trying to do the right thing? Anybody here? Hands up. Anybody saying, I use, I'm trying to do the right thing? Anybody here trying to do the right thing? Okay, most of us are trying to do the right thing, but God says, yeah, but I'm paying attention and I'm weighing what's going on inside your soul. You know, we're often blind to our own faults. And I, I've shared this before, but I'm going to use a psychological tool because here's how I think about psychology. Good psychology is good theology. You know, psychologists talk about dysfunction, right? Isn't that the terminology we use? Yeah, there's brokenness and woundedness and dysfunction in our lives. And the scriptures talk about sinfulness. Same idea. It's, you know, because when we're sinful, what it really means is we're not holy. We're not whole. We're not integrated. There's something amiss in our life. Something needs to be rectified. Something needs to be transformed. Something needs to be changed in our lives. And so I love these two guys. And it's, it's, uh, they come up with this, this paradigm, this, this way of looking at ourselves. And one guy's name was Joe, and the other guy's name was Harry, and they called it Joh- the, the Johari window. Isn't that cute? You know? Yeah. Uh, Anyways, here's what the Jahari window says. The first window or quadrant is what we know about ourselves and other people don't. You know, there's some things you know about yourself. You're not telling everybody. It's just inside of you. And then the second window is that what both others and we know about ourselves. Isn't that true? I mean, I know this about me. You know this about me. We know it together. Okay? But then there's the third window, which is what others know about us and we don't know about ourselves. Isn't that interesting? And then there's the final... And fourth window is what neither you nor others nor I know about me. In other words, that window is basically what we don't know about ourselves and what others don't know about us. So basically, you only know about half of what you're about. If you think about what that Jahari window is saying, isn't that true? Because, you know, I know things about me, you know things about me that I know, but then there's the other half of me that 
You know things about me I can't see. I'm blind to my own faults. And then there's a, a quarter of me that only God knows. So now I can't walk around going, I've got it all together. Because the reality is I don't know what all together means. I'm only knowing a part of what I know if I got it together. And then if you're, you know, you got someone in your life telling you the third part, you know, some people are telling you what's wrong with you. That could get you up to three quarters, but there's still gonna be a part of you others can't see and you don't see that only God can see. And I think one of the dangers of the Christian life is to become like a Pharisee. And not all Pharisees were bad, by the way, because there were some good ones. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Josephus was probably a Pharisee. But you know, Jesus, we, we look at the Pharisees in a very negative way, but they were the separatists. They were the purists. They wanted to do what was right in God's eyes, but it was an external religion. It became very externalized, and they were more focused on the outward, and they were concerned about labeling some things good and some things bad, and then they tried to conform to that, but they didn't realize that they, were, you know, they weren't dealing with everything in their life, and God had a few problems with them, and they were actually impeding people from coming to the kingdom of God because they were self-righteous. Now, how many know that self-righteousness is a real turnoff to people? How many know that's true? You know what I mean? How can you relate to these guys? I mean, they had it all together, and they looked down on everybody else. And we're going to find out that that's probably the ultimate sin, which is the sin of pride. And we're going to see that's a problem down the road. So they had a wrong perception of themselves. And it's true that many create a system of external behaviors. And that's what legalists do. But then there are the internal issues that because of woundedness and brokenness that damage us and negatively impact us and it affects how we relate to other people. Some of us we have problems of trusting people. Some of us have been wounded. Some of us, you know, uh, have been scarred. And some of us don't even realize that the way we communicate wounds people. And on and on it goes. There's all kinds of things about what we don't know about ourselves. And in psychological terms, we use that term dysfunction. And Lawrence Crabb was a Christian psychologist in his book, Inside Out. He said modern Christianity, uh, oh, okay, I, I see. I didn't put this in. Oh, here it is. Modern Christianity and dramatic reversal of its biblical form promises to relieve the pain of living in a fallen world. Now, what, he, what he's going to say here is complete satisfaction. Basically, modern Christianity says we can be completely satisfied in this life. And folks, that's promising too much. I think we've got to learn something. We're not in heaven yet. You see, there is a longing inside of us for the perfect relationship to be you know, the perfect person, to be married to the perfect person, to live the perfect life and never have a problem, never have a medical issue, and never have financial tensions and all the rest of it. And sometimes as Christians, we, we hear these messagings that if we just do the right things, we're gonna get all the right results. And can I just tell you, that's not the, the way it works. Okay, it doesn't quite work that way. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, here, <clears throat> complete satisfaction. I don't believe it can be completely realized until we're fully in the presence of God with no sin in us and around us, okay? The point of living the Christian life then has shifted from knowing and serving Christ till he returns to soothing or at least learning to ignore the ache in our soul. Very powerful. So he argues that much of Christianity is promising more than what is really given now, because there's a tension in the Bible between what's promised now and what's not yet. We haven't fully realized it, and I think we gotta understand that. Now, Peter does write that there's an inexpressible joy available to us that can support us through life's uncertainties, sorrows, and difficulties. 
However, many actually teach that all of these things can be eliminated only if we did the right things, which is wrong. So what am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to say this to us. You and I can still have joy even though we have pain. You go, how can you have joy and still have heartache, Pastor? That's the mystery of the grace of God at work in our soul. That you and I can have, you know, everything's not perfect, but yet we're still walking with a quiet confidence. That we're still walking with hope. That we're still walking with a sense that, you know what, it, and ultimately it's going to work out. That God is a good and loving God, and it may not always be in this lifetime, but it will be in eternity. And we live with that tension continuously in this life. What we are identifying today is not just wrong thinking, but a state of self-deception about our soul. The fool, as described here, does not see room for improvement in their own lives. They see themselves as right. There's a lack of real self-evaluation and openness to correction from God's word or other believers. Earlier in the Proverbs, we're reminded that we should not think more highly of ourselves. He says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. You know? Sometimes we can get lifted up. Sometimes we can become haughty. Sometimes we can have success in our lives. We think we have all the answers. You know what happens? God will bring you down. He'll show you. You don't have it all together. As a matter of fact, you know what? Just because you got out of high school and got your diploma doesn't mean you have the answers to life. Right? How many here could honestly say when I was 18, I had a lot more answers than I do today? You know? Isn't it amazing, you know, when we're young, we think we have all the answers. The older we get, the more we realize I wasn't even asking the right questions. (laughs) Notice it's not so much what we think, it's what God thinks. He sees the actual motivation of the heart. He sees why we're doing what we're doing, and our actions are often driven by fear rather than faith. Our actions are often driven by selfishness rather than a genuine heart concern for other people. We don't even realize that. There's a mixed motive inside of our soul. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 16, 2 says, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Okay, so, you know, we could say, listen, as far as I know, I'm, I'm being pure here, but who knows, you know, I'm not Dove Soap. Or Remember, there was a commercial 99 point whatever percent pure. I mean, let's face it. You know, we'd be happy if we were that pure, Right? There's a lot of stuff going on inside of us. Dr. Longman says this, here human self-perception is judged in the light of Yahweh's perception. The Proverbs speaks to our ability to deceive ourselves concerning our righteousness. Proverbs often denigrates, which means puts down, those who are wise or clean in their own eyes. It just warns you against that, ha- that thing. Can I just say something? Our righteousness is not our own. It's an imputed righteousness. You and I are right before God because of Christ's righteousness. You know what happened? You and I made an exchange. God took on our sin and gave us his righteousness. How many God go, hey, I don't need to perform anymore and try to be righteous. I am righteous because of Christ. You see the difference? It's kind of freeing, right? Okay, so, but what, does, what happens when I start thinking that way, it makes me realize I'm not that great. If it wasn't for Christ's righteousness, I'd be lost. Are we catching on? So we can't get high and mighty and go, hey, man, I'm a Christian now, man. I'm a superstar. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. You and I should be humbled. I'm going, I know I'm a rascal. Thank God you're making me righteous. I got lots of issues down here, okay? You got to work on me, God. Uh, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. 
And the second area of that of the morally deficient person, they have a wrong understanding of the godly life. I think many of the people in this category think of themselves as Christians. I'm gonna shock you, I'm gonna make a statement that's gonna really maybe get some of you upset or make some of you fearful. I'm not trying to do that, but I am trying to get your attention. I'm gonna say it this way. Not everybody who thinks they're a Christian is one. That's a sobering statement, if you thought about it. They have a form of godliness, the Bible says, but they're trying to manipulate God by doing what they think God desires in order for God to do what they desire. It's a game. We're trying to play the game that if I do this, God, you're obligated to do that. I'm trying to manipulate God to do my will. Are we following this train of thought? What do you think happens when you really come to Christ? You have to humble yourself and say, I did it all wrong. As a matter of fact, I don't even want to play the game anymore. I'm stepping out of the game. I'm coming to you, God, and saying, let's figure out what we really need to do here. And God says, well, I have a game plan for me. I actually designed you in the creation of the world, put all these things into your life, and I have a purpose for you. And if you'll just yield your life to me completely, you can do my will. And then you're going to start discovering that life is going to have a whole new meaning to it. It's actually going to get exciting, and you're going to become a new person in the process. How many say that's a lot different? I'm, t- I'm painting a totally different picture. You know, listen to what Proverbs 21.3, and I think it speaks to this issue. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Dwayne Garrett writes, one puts on an external form of piety through observation of religious ceremony. While such ceremonies are not of, in and of themselves evil, they matter little to God in comparison with the true devotion of an obedient heart. This proverb, once again, subtly alludes to God's ability to to, uh, basically discern the intentions of our hearts. See, God knows what we're thinking. God knows what we're really doing. You know, you and I can fool people. You and I can fool ourselves. But there's one person you can never fool, and that's God himself. How's that? So we got to stop playing the game and say, okay, God, I'm just coming the way I am. I don't know how messed up I am, but you certainly do. What is it you want me to do? You know, I think we got to play his game. That's what I'm trying to tell us this morning. And the wicked person doesn't get that. The, 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 moral deficient, the morally deficient person doesn't understand that. I, I'm going to give a classic example of a person who was religious but never really got God. And it's a man by the name of Saul, King Saul. Remember him? You know, Samuel's now confronting him and saying, what in the world's going on here? I send you out to do an assignment. I did, no. Samuel sent him out because God told him to go do it. And so he goes out there, and he's supposed to take out these Amalekites, and uh, Samuel shows up on the scene, and he goes, what's this bleeding of sheep in my ears? You know, like, did you really do what God told you to do, Saul? And we pick up the story. Listen to Saul. But I did obey the Lord. Sounds like a lot of us. Yeah, but I did the right thing. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back, back Agag, their king. Was he supposed to do that? No, but he's telling him, yeah, I did that. The soldiers, notice, I didn't do this. The soldiers did this. They took the sheep and the cattle. How many see the blame game? Shifted over. You know, they brought the sheep and cattle, but I want you to know they had every good intention, Samuel. Listen to this. They took what was best, and they're devoting it to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel says, hey, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. God says, you did this, here's the consequence. Notice Saul tried to get out of it. He tried to push the blame somewhere else. Didn't work, did it? You know, Hosea expresses the same sentiment years later when he's exposing the same faulty thinking that had crept into the corrupt hearts of the northern tribes as they were about to go into exile. He kept warning them, repent, turn away from your idols. Don't just, you know, don't tell me you're worshiping God and then worshiping all these idols. It doesn't fly, it doesn't work. He goes on to say here, that's just, your religion's just an outward show. They were actually living lives of idolatry. And this is what Hosea says in chapter six, verse six, for I desire mercy. Another translation says, I desire loving kindness. But I like the Hebrew word, I desire hesed. Remember I said last week, if you're here, I talked about covenant loyalty. That word hesed is this loving kindness, this love, this loyalty. God says, you know what? I'm in a covenant relationship with you. You know, you and I are married to God. I don't want you to pay f- play fast and loose with me. I want you to be faithful to me. I don't want you to be pursuing after other ambitions and desires because basically anything you put ahead of God is an idol. And if you've got something ahead of God, that's an idol, and you're actually being unfaithful towards God. And God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What is he saying? I'm not interested in rituals. I'm not interested in you playing a game. I'm not interested only, you know, you're coming to church and, you know, you're doing this and that, but really you've got your heart somewhere else and your, your affections are elsewhere. God says, no, I want you, all of you. I want the totality of you. I want you to long for me the way I long for you. There's got to be this this relationship between us. He wants us to know him and an inner desire to please him. May God reveal to us today the true condition of our hearts. Let us not be living in self-deception. And then there are some knowingly who use a disguise of being quote-unquote spiritual to deceive other people. They sound everything's right, but they're really not. Let me look at the third area, is that they're arrogant. There's a lack of humility in their lives. It becomes all about them, or it becomes all about us. It's a self-centered life. Proverbs 21 forces haughty eyes and a proud heart. The unplowed field of the wicked produce sin. David Hubbard points out regarding this chapter these ideas. He says, a dozen sayings drive home the truth that arrogance is self-deceptive, demeaning of neighbors, and abhorrent to God. You know, I don't know how you come across to people, but you know, we should really be encouraging people, lifting them up, blessing them. You know, some people, they have a knack. When you're around them, when you feel and you walk away, you always feel belittled by them. That's not a gift, folks. That's arrogancy. That's That's an unhealthy thing in our lives. Okay? This is abhorrent to God. God hates it. It is the essence of folly because it disregards a couple of things, our creatureliness, our commonality with other human beings made by God, and our utter dependence on God's grace and goodness for all that we are and have. Isn't that powerful? What is he saying? When we're arrogant, what we're saying is we're better than other people. Folks, not one person in this room is better than another. We're all made of dirt, and we're all created in the image of God, which is a very high thing. So we have a low thing and a high thing all happening at one time. Isn't that amazing? And every one of us has dignity and value in the eyes of God, and so we should be treating each other the same way that God sees us. 
And you know, as I reflect more on my own journey, I'm humbled. I am literally humbled by how God has ordered not only my own life, but in every person's life. Do you know God gave you certain traits and certain gifts? That's a gift from God. He just put that inside of you. He designed you with certain things in mind. He's placed us so that we would be shaped by the countries in the time in which we were born and the community in which we grew up, the neighbors, the people, the teachers, the family who nurtured us, who challenged us. And maybe some of them have... You know, you say, well, my family was the pits pastor. Well, listen, then you can say it was the difficulties. And even the difficulties and the obstacles that God allowed into your life were designed to help create and fashion the amazing person you're supposed to become. That's amazing. But, you know, we look at these things. and I had all these, you know, these hindrances and all these difficulties to get to where I was going. But I want to just say to you that sometimes those are the very things that help shape and make you a better person that you were to rise above those things and grow from those experiences, but instead we sit down and we lie down and we just go, I can't do it. Don't give up. God's done all of these things for a reason, and I think one of the great deceptions common to our thinking is that somehow we are wholly responsible for what our lives have become, and that's not quite true at all. Granted, you know, God does hold us responsible for our actions and allow consequences to be experienced in our lives, but our lives are expressions of his amazing grace and mercy to us. We gotta get a hold of this. You know, life is a gift, and all that we have been given has come by the hand of God, and oh, to be filled with gratitude for his grace in our lives, the ultimate grace of the work of God's spirit in making Christ known to us. Wow, what an amazing thing. And think about King David who reflected. He was a humble shepherd boy tending sheep in the field, and God elevated him and made him a king. And here's David's reflections later on in life. He said, then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, who am I, Lord God? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? Is that amazing? How many think he's got the right attitude? You know, and as if this were not enough in my sight, my God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. That doesn't mean his physical building. He's talking about his lineage. You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. You know, my prayer for us today is that we would see ourselves as being so absolutely blessed that we're the most exalted of people, that God has made himself known to us. He has decided to make us a part of his family, that Jesus is our elder brother, that we're participating in the inheritance with all of the saints, that we're gonna spend an eternity with Almighty God, that we're gonna be delivered from the ravages of sin and all of the ugly stuff in this world, that we're gonna spend time with God Almighty forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Isn't that amazing? And he's done that for He has exalted us. And man, should we ever get inside of our soul? If we could ever have a revelation of the amazing love of God towards us, it would blow us away. We would say, oh my God, how can God love me this much? I tell you, you wouldn't be walking around going, oh, poor little old me. (laughs) We'd be walking around going, hallelujah. We should be a hallelujah people. We should be filled with inexpressible joy. You go, you don't know what's going on in my life. Folks, if you're going to let your circumstances define your life, you're going to be living under the circumstances. But if you allow the word of God to define who you are in Christ, 
You will walk with joy and hope and expectation and delight, and it will humble you. It will fill you with gratitude. You will know there is a God in heaven. I like this sermon. We're looking at the characteristics of the wicked, but we can see the blessing of not walking in that understanding. You know, Paul prayed an interesting prayer. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. What's his prayer? Oh, that we might grasp the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of the love of God. That's what we need. We need that revelation. Let me move on. The dishonesty and cruelty that resides in the heart of the morally deficient. How sad it is that we can be so dishonest with ourselves and equally so dishonest with other people, that we can manipulate and deceive people for our benefit, people who were created and designed in the very image of God. I wonder if God gets upset with us. He doesn't like that. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a deadly snare. It's not going to last long. The violence of the wicked will drag them away. Isn't that interesting? The violence of the wicked is not dragging the victim away. It's, driving, it's dragging the perpetrator away. For they refuse to do what is right. They're being dragged away to what? To death. The way of the guilty is devious, but the conduct of the innocent is upright. And this one really scares me. The wicked crave evil. Their neighbors get no mercy from them. We become what we desire. I want you to think about that. We become what we desire. What is it you desire? David desired God. Oh, to be like him. Oh, to know him. Is that powerful? Can I just say something to you? If you've got the wrong desire today, you need to shift it in a hurry. You need to say, God, forgive me. I've got the wrong desires. Oh, I, you know, last week I tried to tell you, what would you choose, wisdom or wealth? Today I'm saying, what do you desire? Because what you desire is going to drive your life, and where you're going is you're writing your eulogy. You don't even know it. Because if your desire is to be like him, that's a powerful desire. You will become just like him. Isn't that amazing? No one is safe from such a person, basically, the person who desires evil. Here we see the warning that if we succeed through dishonesty, we can be assured that it will not endure, and ultimately we will be destroyed for it. So what is the outcome of the wicked? The righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Notice it's capital. It's God. He takes note of the house of the wicked, and he brings the wicked to ruin. God ultimately has the last say on every life. You say, is that fair? Why not? He's the creator. No wonder we don't want to believe in creation. Because the moment I believe in creation, I have to believe there's a a creator. And the moment I do that, then I know I'm accountable to him. That's a powerful thought. We can dismiss these warnings. We can see them strictly as the path that the morally deficient are walking on, but what we need to understand is that these are pitfalls that we need to avoid ourselves. Listen to what Proverbs 21, 16 says, whoever strays from the path of prudence comes to rest in the company of the dead. What's he saying? Be careful where you're walking. Be careful how you're thinking. 
Be careful what you desire. Be careful what you're giving your life to. Isn't he, isn't he telling us that? You know, remember Jesus said, the gate is narrow, but isn't the path narrow too? You know, isn't there a rushing current right now in our culture? Isn't the majority of people saying that, you know what, what you and I hold sacred, they think is foolishness, it's mockery, they're scoffing, they're scorning, they're carrying on about it. They're even changing vocabulary today. You know, they, they say that what is good is evil and what is evil is good. Folks, you know, we live in a culture of death today. We're destroying life at the beginning, we're destroying life at the end. Folks, I'm for life at every which region because God is the God of life and not the God of death. Actually, death is humanity's greatest enemy. And Jesus came to destroy the devil and death. Notice how Jesus warns us in the parable of the sower. I'm going to close with this, where the seeds of God's words are falling on different types of soil. Remember that beautiful parable? And explaining that parable to his disciples, Jesus is warning them about the heart condition and how we receive the word of God. And he says, some people are like seed along the path, and when the word is sown, as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. And how many people attend church, grow up in the church, but their hearts become unreceptive and they don't receive the benefits of these life-giving words and their heart remains unregenerated. They never become born again. They intellectually know it, but they don't ever experience it. It's really tragic. You know, you can talk to them and they can give you the right answers to some of the questions, but they've never known it personally. They've never experienced the truth that's not real to them. They've never been transformed. They've never kind of been the caterpillar that's gone into the cocoon and actually come out a butterfly. God wants to bring about a transformed, changed life. And with heavy heart, I know there's young people, and I've already prayed for them this morning. And then in Mark chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, Others like seeds sown on a rocky place hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And then there are those under pressure. Rather than suffer and endure, they quit and conform to the standards of our culture. You need to say, God, give me the courage. Give me the courage to stand against this culture. In other words, when it really cost something, they weren't willing to pay the price. As long as serving God seems beneficial, I'm on board, but as soon as it becomes difficult, I'm off the ship. Or Mark chapter four, verse 18 says, still others like the seed sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things, see that word desire, come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. What a tragedy. You know what this is saying to me? That all of these things that come into our life are a test. Now, how many, you know, you, you go to school, you get an exam, right? Eventually, you either pass it or you fail the exam, you know, unless you're cheating. But I'm just telling you, you're either passing or failing. You know, it's more important to pass the test of life than it is to pass any exam that you're ever going to take in this life. More important. And all of the trials that you're walking through right now are all a test. It's just revealing the condition of your heart. Am I patient or am I impatient? Am I kind or am I unkind? Am I generous or am I not generous? You know what I'm saying? All of these things that are coming our way are revealing the condition of our heart. Instead of looking at trials as a bad thing, James says, look at it as a good thing. Why? Because it's showing you where you're really at. Why is that a good thing, pastor? What happens if I'm flunking? You still got time to make a change. 
You still got time to say, God, I'm tired of flunking. I'm tired of failing this test. I'm tired of being impatient. I'm tired of being unkind. I'm tired of being this way. I'm tired of being that way. Lord, I come to you right now, and I ask you to bring about a transformation in my life. Don't you think he's interested in that? And his grace is so great, it overcomes all sin. Not just the sin you came with at the beginning of the Christian life, it's the grace that helps you through every day of your Christian life, helping you overcome every difficulty and every step in your Christian life. And I'm gonna have a stand as we close this morning. So how are you writing your eulogy? How are you living your life? That's the question. Because all the things you are doing is building a eulogy. And you can fool people, and they can say a lot of nice things about you, but there's one person you can't fool, and that's God. You can even fool yourself. And that's why I like that prayer from the psalmist, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Search me, God. God says, I know exactly what's in your heart. And you know what? Listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are the clean, the pure in heart. What'll happen? They're going to see God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. I believe right now, if that's your cry, maybe you're here right now. How many can say, you know, Pastor, that's my cry. I want a clean heart. I want a clean heart. I want to know God. I want to experience God. I want everything that God has for my life. I want to just, you know, lay everything down to him. I'm going to give my life to God because he gave me life to start with. I just lay it at his feet right now. I think he's smarter than me. I believe that he knows what's best for my life, better than I know. I'm just going to say today, your will be done. Your will be done in me, Lord. It's not what I think I want. It's what you know I need. I want to do your will. Because I believe if we do his will, we'll be happy. We'll live with meaning and purpose, not necessarily without difficulty. I think we have to be prepared to have a little suffering, to be honest with you. It says, arm your mind, be prepared to suffer. So get that out of your head. Just say, Lord, I want to live a significant life, a purpose-filled life. I want to live and become more like you. So let's just lift our hands to God today. Let's just offer ourselves to him. Lord, would you do that work in our souls today? Would you do that cleansing work, that, uh, that, that powerful work of transformation? Lord, help us not to just hear words and then leave and be unchanged. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you invade my life right now and bring about supernatural change within me? And if I'm struggling with things in my life that are broken, I pray that you would bring healing and wholeness in my life and that you would help me to grow in my areas of weakness. Lord, give me that kind of a heart, a heart after you, a heart filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. And Lord, help me not to blame people for the way things are. Help me to embrace the areas that I'm responsible for and take initiative in my own life to address the things that are wrong and to move forward. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.